0: The focus tonight is Genesis 15, which we have already read. So let us pray before we begin to look at that passage. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would speak through the teaching of your word this night as we enter into the season of Lent. May your word encourage us. May your word convict us. May your word comfort us as we need it. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 15 may seem like a somewhat strange place in the Bible. Uh, to be on Ash Wednesday, but by the time we're done looking at this chapter tonight, uh, I hope you'll see why this story is a very fitting launching pad for the season of Lent. Uh, in this chapter, Abraham raises a series of questions. Uh, really, they're problems he is facing. Really, they're fears he is facing, and God addresses each one in turn. Uh, I like how one pastor has put it, if the problems of life overwhelm us, we call that fear. If the problems of life overwhelm us, we call that fear. But if the promises of God overwhelm us, we call that faith. And it's going to be one or the other, fear or faith. Either your fears will run your life or your faith will run this life. Either your problems will overwhelm you or the promises of God will overwhelm you. Faith in God's promises is the only answer to our fear of life's problems. So this text is really about a battle between faith and fear. Uh, It's Abraham's problems versus God's promises. And as we're going to see, God's promises went out in the end, and so faith drives out fear. And of course, we also need to see that what God did for Abraham, he can do for each of us as well. The chapter begins after these things. Well, after what? Well, after the events of chapter 14, I suppose that's obvious enough, Uh, But in chapter 14, something really significant happens. Uh, Abraham gathers up an army of men from his household, a kind of crack team of soldiers, the Navy SEALs of Abraham's household, if you will. And they're able to go, even though they're greatly outnumbered and outmatched in all kinds of ways, they are able to defeat the kings of the land and rescue Abraham's relative, Lot, who had been taken captive. But despite the victory, Abraham was afraid and with good reason. After all, he had to wonder if the people of the land would regroup and seek revenge. And so the word of the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, for I am your shield and reward. God says to Abraham, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to fear a counterattack. I will be your shield protecting you from your enemies. And if God is your shield, you obviously have nothing to fear. Further, God says, I will be your great reward. It's very interesting. At the end of chapter 14, after Abraham defeats the kings of the land, he refuses to take any reward. He refuses to take any battle plunder for himself. The king of Sodom actually offered Abraham anything he might want from the spoils of battle, anything he might want to take for himself. But because accepting those rewards would essentially mean entering into an alliance with Sodom, Abraham knew better. He said, don't let it ever be said that Sodom has made Abraham rich. So would Abraham have a reward? He gave up a reward from the battle, but will he still have a reward? Well, yes, the Lord says he will. Indeed, the Lord himself will be his reward, and there is no better prize God can give us than himself. If God gives you himself, then you have everything. That's God's promise driving out Abraham's fear. But there's something else interesting here to consider, perhaps another dimension to this. In Psalm 127, we are told the fruit of the womb is a reward. And what Abraham really wants as a reward more than anything, what he longs for more than anything else, is an heir. What Abraham desires is a son. And so the question here, because that's what we're going to move into next, that's the next topic dealt with, could the Lord somehow be Abraham's reward and Abraham's seed? Could the Lord somehow be Abraham's reward, his treasure, his prize, and in a sense be his reward in the sense that the the fruit of the womb is a reward? Hang on to that thought. We'll return to it. The story quickly turns to this topic of Abraham's offspring, or lack thereof. Uh, This is a man whom God has named Mighty Father. That's what Abram means. Uh, Later, he's going to be uh, named. His name will be stretched into Abraham, which means father of a multitude. But here he is, childless. You You can imagine Abraham coming into a town, introducing himself as Mighty Father. And then, well, how many kids do you have? Well, I don't have any. It's almost as if God is playing some kind of joke on him or at least testing his patience. Verse 2, Abraham says, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer was Abraham's servant and a very trustworthy one at that. But he's not a son. He's a servant. And so Abraham asks, Yes, you've said you'll be my shield and my reward, but Lord, what about giving me an heir? What about a son? The Lord has already promised Abraham and Sarah a son, but the problem is they're getting older. They're well past their childbearing years. In fact, they're pushing about a 100 years old at this point in the story. Sarah has always been barren. Where is the fulfillment of God's promise? The promise of a seed hasn't come to pass. Abraham says in verse 3, look, you haven't given me any offspring. But the word of the Lord comes again to Abraham in verse 4 to overcome his fears. Again, it's fear versus faith. It's his problem versus the promise of God. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham again. One who comes from your own body shall be your heir. The word of the Lord brings Abraham this promise again. And then the word of the Lord, it seems the word of the Lord is appearing to Abraham in the form of a person here, not just something spoken, but embodied in some way. The word of the Lord brings Abraham outside his tent and says, look up at the stars and count them if you can, so shall your descendants be. Abraham is told here he will not only have a son, he'll have a great multitude of descendants, a whole galaxy of descendants. And these stars symbolize his descendants really in both quality and quantity. They will be like the stars. They will be rulers. They will shine with glory. They will be a heavenly people, citizens of heaven. They'll shine brightly into the darkness of the world. But they will also be an innumerable multitude, a great heavenly host like the stars of heaven. And then we come to verse 6, which is one of the key Verses in all of Scripture quoted several times in the New Testament by Paul, by James. Even though Abraham has no seed, even though Abraham has no son, he believes this seed promise, this son promise, and so the Lord declares him righteous. Abraham trusts God's promise. Abraham trusts the seed, the son to come, and so he is counted righteous in the seed, in the coming son. Once again, faith overcomes fear. Promises overcome problems. But Abraham is still understandably bewildered. He believes this unbelievable promise, and so he is declared righteous, but he still has questions, and in a way, that ought to encourage us. Uh, We can be walking with God for quite some time, as Abraham has. We can see God do mighty things in our lives, as Abraham did. We can be declared righteous by God. We can be justified before God by faith and still have questions. And so it is with Abraham. The Lord has reiterated the promise of a son. Now he reiterates the promise of a land in verse 7. And these promises go together, the seed and the land. God promises a person and a place, a family and a home. These promises go together. But then in verse 8, Abraham asks for a sign. He's got this whole package of promises given to him. But how can he know? He knows that this is the Lord's way to give his word and then to give a sign to go with the word, an additional witness. Every matter is established on two or three witnesses. So Abraham has the word, the first witness. He asks here for a second witness. He asks the Lord, how shall I know I will inherit it? Abraham wants his assurance bolstered. How can he know he will have an heir when he's childless? How can he know he will inherit the land when it's still occupied by the Canaanites? In other words, how can Abraham know God will fulfill his promises? How can Abraham know God will keep his covenant? We'll look at what God tells him to do. It seems like a bizarre ritual to us, but it would have made perfect sense to Abraham, and we'll see why shortly. Abraham is told to take various clean, sacrificial animals. Later in the sacrificial system, when the sacrificial system is established for Israel, the kinds of animals that Abraham takes here are the kinds of animals the Israelites can sacrifice. He takes a three-year-old heifer and a female goat and ram, a turtle dove and a pigeon, three years perhaps because that's how long Abraham has been dwelling in the land. And he cuts up the animals, not the birds, but he cuts up the animals in two uh, pieces And he sets the pieces opposite of one another. And vultures come down wanting to feast on the carcasses, but Abraham drives them off. And then we're told that as it comes to the end of the day, as the sun begins to go down, this is emphasized, the the sun going down, darkness coming across the land, Abraham falls into a deep sleep. And indeed, not just any kind of sleep, but a horror and a great darkness fall over him. This is not just an evening nap. This is a special kind of sleep. It's as if Abraham is put under some kind of divine anesthesia. It's the same kind of special sleep that Adam fell into in Genesis chapter 2 when he goes into a deep sleep and then God forms the bride, forms the woman out of his side. Okay, Usually if your side gets ripped open like that, you'd wake up, most likely, from your sleep. But not Adam, not in this case. It's some kind of super deep trance-like sleep. It's a death, essentially. And the same kind of language is used here. It's a kind of sleep that is virtually a death. Adam died after a fashion, and then he was raised up, resurrected, as it were, to find that God had given him a bride, that he had moved from one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory now that he has this woman. The same kind of thing is going to happen with Abraham. He'll fall into this deep sleep. It'll be a death. He'll be resurrected as a new man. What's he going to find on the other side of this death sleep when he is resurrected well the real key to understanding that is to look at what happens while he is asleep the vision he is given is the key now, cutting up animals like this, like God commanded Abraham to do, this is obviously a sacrificial procedure. Abraham is acting as a kind of priest, cutting up sacrificial animals. This is a covenant-making ritual. Literally, this is the procedure to cut a covenant. That's the Bible's language. Covenants are made through cutting, through the shedding of blood. Now, when we think of covenant... Uh, probably the first thing that comes to mind for us is a marriage. You know, we, When we talk about covenants today, that's usually what we would think of first is the covenant of marriage. A wedding is a covenant ratification ceremony. And think of the different elements that go into that kind of ceremony. Uh, we've got different rituals and promises that are made and that kind of thing. Uh, this is similar to that, although there are obviously some pretty significant differences too. You think about a wedding, you decorate uh, the place with flowers, not with animal corpses, uh, the way you have here, not with an aisle stained with blood. There is an aisle here because the pieces of the animals are put opposite one another. There is an aisle, but you're not going to have a real pretty bride and a white dress walking down that aisle, uh, as we'll see. Something very different is going to happen here. But there is something in this ritual. There is something that it has in common with a wedding. Think about a wedding. What happens in a wedding? You have a promise. In a wedding, promises unto death are made. The wedding ceremony forms a till death do us part relationship. And you could really say that's what's happening here. This is God formalizing his relationship with Abraham. A wedding forms a bride and a groom into one. There's a kind of one flesh union. And so it is here as well. These animals have been divided to show Abraham's family will be cut off from the land. A division between Abraham and the land is coming, but then they will be restored. They will be reunited to the land in the future. In this ceremony, God is letting Abraham know what is to come. And you especially see this as the spoken word goes with the ceremony in verses 13 through 16. It's prophetic. God tells the story to Abraham what will happen. He's giving Abraham the story ahead of time. Abraham finds out that his descendants will be strangers in the land, and then they will eventually become slaves. And it's going to be 430 years before the Lord rescues them from their bondage in Egypt, but then they will come out of that bondage with great possessions. And when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete in the fourth generation, then the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, will take possession of the land. This ceremony is binding Abraham and his heirs to the land. There's going to be a division, but there's going to be a reunion. There's going to be an exile, but there's going to be an exodus as well. You have these vultures who are coming down to get the animal pieces signifying the curse, but they're driven off to show whatever curse Israel experiences won't be final. And while his descendants will be taken from the land, again, there's going to be an exodus, there's going to be a conquest, they're going to come back to the land and finally claim ownership of it. God says, this is going to happen. Not on your timetable, perhaps, Abraham, but it is going to happen. This ritual points to the coming history for the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Slavery, exodus, conquest, it's all there. But I think there's something else going on here, what you might think of as a deeper meaning to this, a more ultimate meaning, another layer to this ritual that we should not miss. And the real clue to this is actually found in uh, later in Scripture in Jeremiah chapter 34. I think this was known in Abraham's day. It's spelled out explicitly in Jeremiah 34. Jeremiah 34 verses 18 to 20 describe a very similar procedure where animals are cut up and set opposite one another in a kind of covenant ratification ritual. But there we find that the ritual involves what you could call a self-maledictory oath. See, Jeremiah 34 describes these men who cut up these animals And then they set the pieces opposite one another, just like Abraham does here. It's the same procedure. And then you find that the two parties pass through the pieces. They pass through the pieces of the animals. And as they do so, they make a covenant with one another. They make an oath to one another. They enter into a covenant with one another, a kind of binding agreement, a bond in blood, if you will. Those who pass through the pieces make a pledge to one another. Something like this. This is the essence of it. If I do not fulfill my covenant promise, may I be cut to pieces just as these animals have been. May it be to me as it has been to these animals if I do not keep my word. Just as these animals have been sacrificed, if I don't keep my covenant with you, may I be sacrificed as well. To pass through the pieces is to say, may I keep this covenant even if it kills me. That's the kind of relationship a covenant is, and this is how a covenant is entered into. This is what could be called a self-maledictory oath. We've got something like this and the little children saying. Maybe you grew up saying this. Maybe you kids say this. You know, you make a promise, and then you say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Okay, You're, you're calling down curses upon yourself if you don't keep your word. Now, my experience as a kid was that the more people said that, the more likely they were to lie. But uh, I don't know what your experience is. We can compare notes later. But that's not the case here. When you say something like that, you're saying, may I die rather than break this promise? May I be cut up? May I have a needle poked into my eye rather than be untrue to my word? Well, something like that, but in a much more serious way, is happening here. That's what this ceremony in Genesis 15 is saying. It lays everything on the line. It makes promise keeping a matter of life and death, a matter of blessing and curse. To pass through the pieces is to say, may I be cut up if I don't keep my vow. May I be butchered like these animals if I don't keep my oath. May I keep this covenant or may the curse of the covenant fall upon me. And of course, the curse of the covenant is death. It means being sacrificed. It means being torn up like these sacrificial animals. Well, Abraham falls into this deep sleep. A great horror and darkness come over him. He's filled with fear because he knows what this means. This is a covenant ratification ceremony. He's filled with horror and dread, anticipating having to pass through the pieces and wondering what it will mean for him. How could he ever produce the fulfillment of the covenant? He knows he can't produce a a son with Sarah. He's been trying for decades and it hasn't happened. And they're too old for that now. He knows he can't conquer the land in his own strength. He knows that can't happen. But as Abraham is in this deep sleep, in this deep darkness, what happens? Who passes through the pieces? Verse 17. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that, behold, there appeared a smoking pot and a burning torch that passed through the pieces. Thus, we could say, making a covenant with Abraham and reiterating the promise God had made of an heir and a land. Indeed, God goes on. The Lord says to your descendants, I will give this place from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. I will give the Canaanites into your hand. What just happened? What does it mean? What does Abraham see? The Lord alone passes through the pieces. The Lord puts himself under oath. He puts a curse on himself. The Lord alone takes the self maledictory oath. The Lord is telling Abraham, I stake my life on this. The Lord says to Abraham, I am taking full responsibility for the fulfillment of these covenant promises. The Lord says, I will keep these promises even if it kills me. Even if I have to be sacrificed like these animals, I will keep my word to you, Abraham. This is how you can know for sure. Cross my heart, hope to die. That's what God says to Abraham. The smoking pot and the burning torch, these are obviously a theophany, much like the cloud and pillar of fire that will lead the Israelites this is a, an appearance, a revelation of God himself. God appears to Abraham passing through the pieces, making this oath, swearing by himself that he will do what he has promised. Now, how does God fulfill this? How does God ultimately fulfill this covenant? Well, fast forward from Genesis 15 to Mark 15 to another time when the land is covered with a thick darkness with the dread of a thick darkness. And what do we find? Now we find the Lord ultimately fulfilling this promise. We see the Lord keeping his oath. What do we see in Mark 15? Abraham's seed, the true Isaac, Jesus Christ, the Lord in human flesh, the one who is Abraham's reward, the one who is Abraham's son, sacrificing himself in order to fulfill these covenant promises. Unlike Isaac, God said sacrifice Isaac, but then God stopped Abraham right at the last moment. Unlike that, for this, the greater Isaac, Jesus Christ, God goes through with the sacrifice. And Genesis 15 shows us what it means. God is torn apart on the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The God man, God's son and Abraham's son is suffering the covenant curse. God is keeping his word to Abraham at Calvary on the cross. God is being crushed for our iniquities. He is smitten, stricken, and afflicted. He is wounded for our transgressions. He was made an offering for sin. His blood was poured out for us. He bore the dreadful curse of the covenant in order to fulfill the promises of the covenant. It cost him everything. But God has made good on his promise. God has made good on his oath to Abraham. On the cross, God has absorbed his own wrath. He has swallowed his own curse. Romans 3, which we also read tonight, really is about this. I would paraphrase it this way. God the Father set forth God the Son as a propitiation, that is, a sacrifice to turn away wrath by his blood so that the promises to Abraham might be fulfilled. Through Christ's death on the cross, the worldwide family promised to Abraham is formed. Through the cross, the blessing of the Spirit is poured out. The water flowing out from Jesus' side is a sign of that. Through the cross, our inheritance in God's new creation, a much better promised land, the new heavens and new earth, our inheritance in God's glorious future is secured. God swore by himself to Abraham, I will keep these promises even if it means dying for you. And in Jesus, that's what God did. In Genesis 15, God said, I will do whatever I have to to keep this covenant, even if I have to be sacrificed like these animals. And on the cross, that is exactly what it came to. That is exactly what God did. Isn't it interesting in Genesis 15 that the word of the Lord comes to Abraham again and again? And the word is not only spoken to Abraham, but the word is seen in a vision. The word of the Lord coming to Abraham in Genesis 15 is both audible and visual. And so we might ask, not just what is this word of the Lord, but who is this word of the Lord speaking to Abraham, taking Abraham outside and pointing him to the stars and appearing to Abraham in his vision? Who is this word of the Lord? Well, in John chapter one, Jesus is called the word, the word made flesh, the eternal word of God now clothed in human flesh. What does it mean? It means Jesus is the one there in Genesis 15. Jesus is the one speaking to Abraham. Jesus is the one taking Abraham outside his tent and putting, pointing him to the stars. Jesus is the one passing through the pieces in the form of smoke and torch. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God appearing to Abraham. You know, sometimes we think that, you know, it's kind of like a ball game and the first half of the game is the Old Testament and the people of God are getting defeated really, really bad. And then there's this player who's been sitting on the bench, a star player, and then we trot him out there for the second half and that's when we start to win. But actually, Jesus has been in the game all along. He's always been there from the very beginning. He's there showing up again and again throughout the Old Testament. And that's true here. In fact, I think it's so interesting to connect this passage with John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus astounds his Jewish enemies by claiming to have met Abraham. It's a claim that they simply find ridiculous. They are boasting about being Abraham's descendants. And Jesus says, well, if you were really of your father Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. You would share the faith of Abraham. And then Jesus goes on to say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. That's so amazing that Abraham saw Jesus' day and rejoiced in it. How did Abraham see Jesus' day? How can he look into the future to Jesus' day? Well, it happens in passages like this one where Jesus is revealed to him, where Jesus comes to Abraham and shows himself to Abraham and shows to Abraham what he will do. And so in Genesis fifteen six, yes, Abraham trusts in Jesus and he is counted righteous in Jesus. But again, in in John chapter 8, the the enemies of Jesus, these Jewish enemies, they, they just don't understand. They think his claims are crazy. They say to him, you're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? You're not old enough to have seen Abraham. And how does Jesus respond? He says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus doesn't just say, no, actually, I'm a few thousand years old, so I really could have been there back in abraham's day no jesus says he is the eternal god he is god in the flesh standing before them before abraham was i am jesus is saying he is the one who always has been and always will be before abraham was i am That sounds like a grammatical mistake. I mean, shouldn't he have have said before Abraham was, I was? Wouldn't that make more sense? No, he says before Abraham was, I am. Why? Well, I think you probably know. It's because I am is God's special name for himself. It points us to God's eternal faithfulness, his eternal consistency, his eternal goodness, his eternal stability. It points us to God as the covenant making, covenant keeping God. The God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus goes on in John 8, he says, I am. Uh, he says, I am. Uh, that's how he describes himself. It's really interesting to compare this to Genesis 15, where Jesus again and again says, I am to Abraham. He says to Abraham, I am your shield, and your great reward. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I am the Lord who will give you the land. He's saying again and again to Abraham, I am. In John chapter 8, when Jesus says, I am, he is saying, I am the one who appeared to Abraham and spoke to him. I am the faithful covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He's saying, I am the one who passed through the pieces. Genesis 15 is Jesus meeting with Abraham. Jesus meeting with Abraham to comfort him, to assure him, to conquer Abraham's fears, to enable Abraham's faith to overcome his fears, to give promises that will overcome Abraham's problems. Indeed, Jesus is the one in whom the fullness of time will enter history. This is the message for Abraham. He will become the incarnate Lord, the eternal I am, now made flesh. God's son, yes, but also the son God promised to Abraham, Abraham's promised seed. And so he is the one in whom the promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled. Jesus speaks promises to Abraham, but more than that, he is the promise made to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the promises made to abraham the hero in genesis 15 is not abraham the story is not really about abraham the story is jesus he is the hero it's all about what jesus does for abraham it's about what he will do in history it's about what he does for each of us like abraham we can be racked with all different kinds of fears We are fearful when life threatens to overwhelm us, when the problems of life seem to overwhelm us. But we fight those fears with faith. This passage shows us we should let the promises of God overwhelm us. We should let the promises of God overwhelm our problems. We should let the faithfulness of God overwhelm our fears. God has passed through the pieces. God has made an oath. He has given us His word. He says, I will be your shield and your great reward. And God has passed through the pieces so we may know. How do we know? Abraham asked, How do I know? He got a vision of what was to come. How do we know? We can look back at what he's already done. Jesus was ripped to pieces. His blood was spilled. He endured the darkness and death and curse of the cross. So we may know he is our great shield. He is our reward. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for what Jesus has done. We thank you for the way he showed himself to Abraham so Abraham could look ahead and rejoice in his day. And now we can look back and rejoice in that day. And we can also look ahead and rejoice, knowing that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Everything you have said will be fulfilled in him. And we know this because Jesus has borne the curse. The only thing keeping us from you, our sin. Jesus has taken away our sin by bearing the curse for us on the cross. May this faith overcome our fears. May your promises overcome our problems. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.